Welcome to this latest episode of the Culture Blast podcast. I'm your host, Farah Nayeri, and I'm delighted to bring you another episode of our podcast, Culture Blast. It's proving popular with so many of you in so many different parts of the globe. So exciting. As you know, Culture Blast is a series of hour-long interviews with some of the greatest artists of our time in a mix of cultural disciplines. My most recent guest was Charlotte Gainsbourg. Before that, I interviewed Emma Thompson, Niall Rogers, Nan Golden, Elif Shafak, Wayne McGregor, and Ai Weiwei. I now bring you Sonia Boyce, the British artist whose pavilion at the Venice Biennale won Britain the top accolade, the Golden Lion for Best National Participation, earlier this year. Sonia's parents were originally from Guyana and from Barbados. Another great British artist of Afro-Caribbean origin, Isaac Julian, who is now Sir Isaac Julian, once said this about Sonia. Sonia has always been our star, Isaac said. She is someone who has always been incredibly significant for black artists. Historically, she has had this incredibly important position. Sonia was the first black British woman to enter the collections of Tate in 1987, and she was the first black British woman to get elected to the prestigious Royal Academy of Arts. I conducted a long interview with Sonia for the New York Times at her studio in South London in May. It was right after she'd won the big trophy at the Venice Biennale. And we talked about how artists who were not white and male were now suddenly, and in a major way, emerging after what was often many, many years of grossly insufficient recognition. The subject of exclusion followed by inclusivity is one that I talk about a great deal in my book, Takedown, Art and Power in the Digital Age, which came out earlier this year and which you can find pretty much everywhere. This episode of Culture Blast with Sonia Boyce has been sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. Sonia Boyce, it's truly exciting to have you here with me in the London studios as the new guest of Culture Blast. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. My pleasure. You and I spoke in May when both of us had just returned from Venice and you had just won the biggest prize there is at the Venice Biennale, the Art Biennale, the Golden Lion for national participation. I wondered what has changed in your life and in your career since winning that prize? And is it a prize worth winning? Oh, it's definitely a prize worth. I think it's one of the most coveted prizes that one could ever get. I mean, it's equivalent to an Oscar, really. Mm -hmm. um, so what has changed? Um, I didn't think I could get any busier, but I am busier than ever. And I'm talking with lots of people about future projects, which is, you know, it was one of the things that I was thinking about going into Venice was, well, this gives me a certain kind of global platform. And I've been showing internationally for, you know, the 40 years that I've been you know, an artist, but the major museums have, have started to show interest, which is what doing Venice is really about, is actually opening up the possibilities. So, yeah, things have got really kind of supersonic in terms of change. So when we spoke in May, uh, Sonia, you said 
It seems almost ridiculous that it takes into the 21st century for a black British female artist to be invited to do Venice. And you also said to be the first suggests that there wasn't a space for anyone like me before. And you just alluded to the fact that there are all these museums that are now knocking on your door when you've been out there working for 40 years. Where were they before? So what, do, what does all this evoke in you? Uh, mixed feelings? Uh, mixed feelings. I mean, you know, it's not to suggest that museums internationally hadn't been interested. It's just more of them are. Because I think part of it is that the narrative about me and my work has been almost kind of cotton wool kind of protected in terms of the 1980s. So that people have kind of, they've heard of me because, you know, I've, I've appeared in many publications as well as many group exhibitions and also solo exhibitions. And I have to say, you were also the first black British female artist to be collected by the Tate. Yeah. And this is in 1987. Yeah. So yeah, you've been on the on the big map for a very, very long time. But I think because people have not necessarily kept up with the shifts and changes is inevitable when one's developing one's art practice. I think for many people they just didn't know what it what's the work about? What's what's she doing? You know, because they're image of me may have been kind of far back in the 1980s and on this question of the question of the firsts mm-hmm. um i mean it is it is it is an accolade so it's you know i'm not gonna you know bemoan it being an accolade but it's a it's a double-sided accolade in which mm-hmm. there is this so what why am i the first at this point you know when there have been you know i'm not the first you know woman of African descent to have gone to art school, developed an art career, maintained an art career. So it's it's like, well, people are not looking. They're not curious. And that's and I suppose that's part of my criticism is just to get more curious because there's some fabulous work that's happening. Mm-hmm. But we have seen, uh, to be fair, major change in the past five, six years, of course, as you well know, in that artists who are not white and male are suddenly, I would say, being foregrounded. Uh, and I think hashtag Me Too and Black Lives Matter have helped a lot, as I write in my book, Take Down. Um, they've been very important catalysts of change. But then there are always these people who might turn around, and they do turn around and say, these artists are being promoted because of their gender, or because they're not white, or because of this or because of that. What's your response to that? It's sort of this kind of like almost... Um, playing down of talent and merit. Yeah, I mean, I do think that that, that suggests that, that the work itself may have no merit and that actually that's one, one is in a position of public platform, you might say. Or being a symbol. A symbol of, or a representative of mm-hmm. a group of people without, that comes out of guilt somehow, of understanding that there is inequities within the various fields, not just the, not just within culture, but across the field, across mm-hmm. the, the whole spectrum of of daily life. So, mm-hmm. you know that you know to say, oh, why are we now paying attention to? Is like kind of recognition. Oh, we weren't paying attention to, um, and to to then, you know, I think it's very complicated the way in which people then start to feel like they are being admonished somehow yeah. to not to have been as fair as they thought that they were being. 
Yes. I mean, I get that. Like, for instance, someone uh, in a recent panel discussion to me said, oh, yeah, but there is this culture of whinging and whining now and moaning about, oh, we haven't had enough artists of this category or that category. And, you know, it's a bit tiresome. And I said, do you realize that (laughs) for centuries, if not millennia, the people in these categories, including women, by the way, have been completely, almost completely ignored. So it's really in, in, you know, in the grand scheme of things. And when you look at the arc of history, it's only been about five, 10 minutes that these women are getting attention. And you're saying that they're whinging and whining. I mean, I think this, you know, it's also this question about asking people to recognize bias Mm. and what bias suggests, particularly in in the field of culture where we're meant to be, you know, there's this idea that we're kind of egalitarian and all inclusive and that we are curious and we're always cutting edge and all of those things that are seen as very positive and for some even radical signals of, of positive change. For me, it's quite an old chestnut. Oh, the whinging, the the moaning. Many of the artists that I know are getting on with things. They are getting on with things and their work is really very interesting and um, is there to really make us think about lots of things. Um, and they're not moaning. I mean, there's no moaning. You weren't moaning before you got this, the, all these accolades. Yeah, I wasn't moaning. I was just getting on with stuff, yeah. you know. And so it's, it's but the, within that, there is a recognition that despite getting on with stuff and and being curious about what's going on and being very deeply involved in what's going on, that the, the biases pull up the pull up the bridge and don't let you cross somehow. Yeah, and also you're right. It comes from a place of guilt because these people uh, say, "Why should we be made to feel guilty?" That's what they're really saying, isn't it? That is, and that's the bottom line. Mm. And why should we be made to feel guilty for our biases, for you know, for what we think is business as usual, when we're all getting on with the business? Yeah, but then isn't that a little insulting? I mean, actually, a very insulting when you're a female artist, or, or and you know, you're being told something like this that you were just picked because you're a woman. Um, I am a woman. Yeah. Um. Well, I think I am. I think biologically I might well be. Yeah. Um, I'm also a feminist. And, you know, I actually think that everybody should be a feminist. I don't understand why people aren't, to be honest. Yeah. Um, Because feminism, at its heart and core, is looking for equity. So I, I, and I understand the argument, oh, would you be rather called a, an artist or a black artist or a woman artist or a black woman artist? Well, I'm all of those things. And I, that, for me, that doesn't trouble me. It doesn't tell you what I do. It tells you what I am. Yeah, but what they're saying, I mean, the implication is that these people are actually not good enough, right? I mean, which is the thing that, I bring up in my book, you know, I'm sorry, but not good enough is the thing that it's it's the epithet that has been following women for centuries. But the, And so is that not an insult to you? Of course it's an insult, but yeah. the, the not good enough is based on just a state of being. I am biologically female. I am historically and ethnically of African descent yeah. going through the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, those are facts. It doesn't 
And if those facts suggest that I'm not good enough, then you're, what is it that, what's the basis of that judgment? Definitely. But how important do you think it is? Because I know that there have been periods in your life when you've switched into a new genre of art and uh, in which you have not been in the spotlight. You've been outside of the spotlight for quite some time. How important is it for an artist such as yourself or any artist to be recognized by museums, to have lots of shows, to be in the spotlight and to get media coverage? I mean, it's really important. It's part, it's part of the ingredients of, of, of having what one might consider to be a successful and productive career. But it's, it's not the only thing. Of course, making art, as all forms of culture, one doesn't do it just for oneself. One does it to be in dialogue with other people. And so it's, it's in those sites, those museums, those collections, those opportunities, opportunities to think, time and space to make work that those those conversations can really happen you know 20 30 years ago there was so much debate about how galleries and museums are elitists and Mm -hmm. so few of the the wider community go into them and some of those questions have been addressed and of course artists are part of that discussion and they feel they have something to say I feel I have something to say and I want as many people as possible to engage with me in those the ideas that I'm working with so of course those opportunities become significant and you know I'm very ambivalent about being a representative figure Mm -hmm. um, there to represent some amorphous community why are you ambivalent about that because, you know, and I think about something that uh, Kabina Mercer, who's an art historian, who who wrote a very important um, essay called The Burden of Representation, mm-hmm. that somehow the idea that one, one black female artist represents all black female artists is, it borders on a kind of fascism, actually. Really? To be honest. Fascism? For me, yes, because it's to, it's to make us abstract, in a way. We're, yeah. we're a type. We're not individuals, we're not humanised if we're, if we're placed in that position of one equaling all. While at the same time, I do recognise that, you know, there's so much conversation about role models. And if you see someone that's in a position that you kind of think, oh, that looks interesting. Oh, I, you know, I, I have some sort of, there's a kind of mirroring that can happen. That individual can see themselves in that place. So it's a double-edged sword, not, as you say. Um, it's not something I take lightly. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I do. I I find that question of being a kind of representative model really like it's it's troubling because if there were if there was a diversity, a true diversity, full range of possibilities, then I don't have to stand in that place as the as the representatives, as the first, as the one. Because I, I think it, it, can skew, it can really skew with your, with your head and your ego, that, that yeah. sort of stuff. But I imagine now as, as you know, the golden lion is enshrined in, in history or art history and you're putting on other shows and we're moving forward in time, I guess people are really like the wider audience will say, you know, will recognize you for who you are, you know, an important artist. And there's, they're going to stop thinking, oh, well, she is the first X, Y, Z, you know. Well, that's the hope. Yeah, that's the hope, isn't it? Me amongst many others as well, you yeah. know. And I think that there's, there's plenty of room for other uh, women 
of colour artists to get the golden lion. Uh, and that's, you know, and so that it's, it doesn't seem like a kind of oddity or some kind of blip that's kind of taken place. So, I mean, just to think about this. Yeah. In art schools, I mean, definitely in art schools in the UK. And I'm talking about back to the you know turn of the 20th century. Usually 50% of students at art school were female. Yeah, I know. And then the moment they came out of art school, yeah. the possibilities for them plummeted. Makes no sense. It makes no sense. They were yeah. learning the same things. They got accepted on the same criteria. Uh, and the moment they leave art school, the opportunities plummet. I mean, you've been teaching for how many years? 40 years. You're at the University of Arts London? Yes, I am. Yes, you are a professor there. So, Professor Sonia, uh, <laughs> uh, to move on to your life story, which is very, very interesting as well. You grew up in the Whitechapel area of East London in a house full of colour. There was richly patterned wallpaper everywhere and lots of spectacular fabrics because your father was a tailor and your mother was a seamstress as well as being a nurse. So the visual landscape of your childhood was incredibly rich. You went on in early part of your career to make very beautiful oil pastels, these self-portraits of yourself as a young girl wearing brightly colored dresses against richly patterned sort of wallpaper motifs. And, you know, this, they were, these were kind of inspired by Frida Kahlo, of course, who you really liked. But I, I imagine that they were also inspired by the environment in which you grew up. And I wondered, how much did the house that you grew up in color your art? Uh, it's really funny because, um, I, as you know, I'm preparing for this show. That's you're having a show at the Simon Lee Gallery, and so I've been, um, I have been covering these sculptural structures in wallpapers that I've been making, and realised that I was because they're slightly odd shapes. I had to create a, a kind of pattern, a, a kind of paper pattern, cutting pattern for for each element. As I was doing this, I could see my dad and I could see my mum both of them were just expert at, at at making clothes and I kept getting it wrong and thinking oh and I could hear in my in, in my <laughs> mind their commentary as I was trying to figure out how to do this pattern cut isn't that amazing and thinking yeah oh, this is what I've been doing for a really long time this is just this granular Gosh. thing that has lasted ever since I was a child as I said I'm 60 now and recognising that those influences have been very much kind of guiding me through all these years, whether I've been paying attention to it or not. It's just yeah. been there. It's extraordinary because obviously your Venice installation, which was an homage to um, vocalists of African, Asian and Caribbean origin uh, who have been overlooked. It was a kind of sound installation, but then wallpaper was also so important. I mean, wallpaper is a really important part of your art practice. It, and it has been. It's it's kind of, it feels like it's kind of taking over at the moment. Yeah. I say that with a sense of humour. But, you know, one of the things that I have, because you're always having to review your practice. And, you know, the thing that I remember as a child is not only was this kind of multi-sensory kind of, pattern surfaces in our home but that particularly wallpaper and I, I this may be just that I was a kind of I had an overactive imagination as a child but I always used to in the middle of the night think that the wallpaper was moving 
that that that's these imagery that the imagery that there was something going on with this imagery that was happening on in the room um and so i you know it's something that's always stayed with me and i'm i'm often quoting there's a the very first prize i ever received was i was about 6 or 7 maybe even 8 and i think it may have been for handwriting i'm not i'm not quite sure i can't remember now that far back mm-hmm. but the first prize i ever received was a book by roald dahl called charlie and the chocolate factory yeah i'm i've spoken about this a few times recently there's a chapter where uh where Willy Wonka, who has yeah. his factory, and he's taking all of these people who've won this prize, these kids who've won this prize, the golden ticket, into throughout, kind of take them on a tour of the factory. And they go into this room. Uh, they, the door opens, and uh, the story goes that these cubes look round. And this always perplexed me as a child. And then they go into the room, and there's this room, room is full, filled with wallpaper. Mm-hmm. that has got lots of fruit and vegetation on it. It's got snozberries and all kinds of fruits, fruits that are completely made up. Basically, um, Willy Wonka says, well, you know, you can lick the wallpaper. It was my first book that I owned, belonged to me. It didn't belong to anybody else. I had won this book. So it was, it's, some, it's a book that's held a really special place for me. In that, And I've, since then, I've become a complete bookish person and I've read actually I've read that story to all of to my kids uh, but that thing about going into a space things not quite making sense that things do odd things like a wallpaper that you can lick and you can you could eat off the paper somehow that the stories that wallpapers tell are mysterious somehow well, you were a very visual child, right? You were drawing all the time and, and you were noticed by your teacher in school who actually sent you, I think, to life drawing classes uh, because she saw uh, that you were constantly drawing. So obviously as a visual child surrounded by this wallpaper, it would almost be normal for you to start picturing the wallpaper moving or creating your own imaginative cartoons out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that it really did have an impact on me. You know, because we're always curious, you know, why as an artist are you doing wallpaper? But I actually love the symbolism or how we kind of almost mythically think about wallpaper as this thing that recedes in the background somehow, that it doesn't make too much of a fuss, that is there, it holds a space, but it's kind of quietly there. Only people talk about being wallflowers. And I just love all of the things that that wallpaper itself and and repeat pattern itself starts to suggest. So, yeah, I mean, I think it it has always played on my, my, my imagination somehow. Do you see it as a metaphor for the fact that your community had to be stepping back and and being you know sort of fading out into the wallpaper as it were well i i i think because you know i was growing up in in london in the 60s and you know my parents were very aware of the dangers of racism within within you know we yeah. in whitechapel i live just off brick lane actually for them it was always about okay well just don't make too much noise you know they're always trying to keep us safe that we could go out but go with you know don't go out on your own go with others um don't make too much noise don't put your head too much above the parapet so they were you know they were always trying to kind of and of course as a particularly when I became a teenager I was really rebelling against these constraints when I could see you know, my peers being able to go out and do all sorts of things, and it's like, why are they trying to you know, keep? So being in the being in the domestic space was about 
somehow trying to create a protective space. It's very interesting that this wallpaper has this other meaning as well. It's not just wallpaper. It's not just a visual background. It's basically a cocoon in which you can live your, live your own world. How fascinating. I didn't know that, actually. I just wondered how much you think that one's childhood determines one's trajectory as an artist. Let me explain. There are two important examples that come to my mind. Pablo Picasso was the son of a painter, as you know. And according to his mother, I mean, she might have been exaggerating a bit, but his first word was peace or peace, and, uh, which is short for lapis, which means pencil. This is according to his mom, you know, take it or leave it. But Mozart also was the son of a violinist and of a composer. And I know that your parents weren't artists, but I do wonder how much do you think that your childhood and those early years growing up in East London determined your trajectory? I think a lot. I think a lot because, you know, everybody in my family were, we were all creative. Everybody was always making things. And we never kind of talked about, just everybody made something in the house. So it was just, it was, it was as natural as breathing. And and tell me how how great a tailor was your father? He must have been great, and your mother must have been also very good with her hands sewing. Very good. Both were very good. In fact, I, I was talking about this the other day that whenever we went shopping for clothes, particularly my mum would always check the insides of of garments, whether it was expensive clothes or fairly cheaply made clothes. But she would check the insides of garments to see whether there was what the seaming was like. And yeah. so we'd all, I'd get really annoyed. It's like, oh, can we not just buy something? And she'd be showing me, okay, so this is really well made because of the way the seaming has been done. You can take it out, you can take it in. There's enough space there. There's enough of the seaming and material there to alter this if you need to alter it for for your own. And so just things like that were about the technical things of making. Mm-hmm. You know, both of them could make anyone a garment what seemed like magic to me, they'd do a few measurements and then they would draw out and cut and then they would fit onto someone and it would be perfect. And just thinking, that is such a skill. Is it a skill you have? <laughs> oh, my mother used to. So it had to be, it has to be noted uh, when I was a teenager, I was, it was during the 70s. And so the punk, very much punk era, they're very interested in punk. And I had no patience whatsoever with making clothes. And I would kind of half make clothes. And if I couldn't do it in one, in a day, then I I would just pin the rest of it and go out. And it would my mother would be almost crying, saying, "Please don't go out like that." Please, you know, for her it was almost a kind of insult to the skills that she thought she'd passed on. That I'm terrible at making making clothes. I have to say, but you are good at doing things with your hands. Obviously, you can make things. I mean, aside from drawing and painting, you can make things, right? I am a maker. So, what is it that you can make? Um, I. I mean, I don't. I don't really do hobbies. Yeah. Because I'm so. No, not hobbies, but in your art, what is it that you make? So I, I'm these constructions that I'm building at the moment, and yeah. I, you know, do, I've been designing. I have been designing wallpaper designs right. of my own since the '90s, but it's really, really increased in 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 recent years. So I'm, I do a lot of things digitally. I also I make films. I make prints. I do still do drawings. I've been making these sculptures. I've been really getting. Uh, there's been a lot of glue. In fact, the, the jeans that I'm wearing are covered in glue at the moment and could quite easily stand up on their own without me. 
<laughs> covered in material stuff that I'm working with. I love materials. I love hardware stores. I love actually what knowing what materials can do. So my 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 life is very. It's actually my studio's messy, and then I have moments where it, once things are done, I have to do a massive clear up. But yeah, I am. I'm very materially kind of involved. Um, and then I there's some people that I work with who I work with who do editing, or I go to. There's a printmaker that I've been going to who who works on the prints with me, and we decide what kind of paper, what kind of finish. I mean, for some people they might be quite boring details, but these are the things that get me excited when I wake up in the morning that I'm going to go and see the printer, and we're going to choose whether it's a, a matte paper or a slightly silky paper or if there's going to be a certain finish on the print. I mean, this is... Well, you're an artist. I mean, that's just the way it works. Oh, the, yeah, as, yes, as it, as it should be, as it yeah. should be. You touched on the issue of race, um, talking about your parents earlier. And the last time we spoke, you did tell me about a, a silent but chilling incident that you experienced as a child going to a store with your sister who was two years older and um, not being served. It was something that to me seemed straight out of the America of the segregation era. And yet it was something that happened, you know, in the 1970s. Or Can you recount that incident and the impact it had on you and your f- life after that? Yeah, I mean, this, actually, this was in the 60s. 60s, um, sorry. Um, when we were living in, in Whitechapel. But I think it's a it's, it's con- con- very common experience. So, you know, things may be different now, but when I was growing up, Often as children, we'd be asked to go and get something from the corner shop or go and do errands. And so my sister, who's slightly older than myself, and I, we were asked to go buy something from the shop. And so we went on our own. I, you know, I might have been about eight or nine years old. And we went into the shop and there was a queue and we were waiting in the queue. But then um, the queue went down and more people came in the shop and we were staring at the people who were running the shop. They would look at us very coldly and basically they wouldn't serve us until the shop was empty. Mm-hmm. And it, and at first I was, you know, because I was young, I was kind of really confused as to what was going on. And then I you know, slowly realised they're not going to serve us. Why are they not serving us? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we're holding our money. We know what we want. Other people are getting served. And it was at that point that I realised, oh, it's because we're black. Which is, is, is really harsh for someone that's really young to yeah. realise that you haven't done anything wrong. You just happen to be. And that people have decided, well, no, we're, we are going to serve. We're not going to serve you because of that. And then they were really curt when they actually did serve us in the end. But yeah, it was a, it was a kind of an awakening, you could say, that people could be horrible. We had money. We, we would just wanting to do a very simple transaction and then I think I I vaguely remember the thought of we couldn't leave the shop because our mum has said that we had to get this stuff yeah and so we would just you know there's a a moment of just being stuck like a kind of rabbit in the headlights thinking oh what do we do in this situation and then you know they did finally serve us but the shop was empty by the time literally there was nobody in there while we were being served and of course I make sense of it in retrospect much more readily but at the time it was very confusing and really distressing because it's like as a child thinking we what have we done wrong yeah yeah but I really wondered whether because your practice has become very much about 
overlooked uh, categories, overlooked communities, giving voice to the voiceless. And um, I was wondering whether this this very, very early experience of, well, racism sort of shaped also the art that you went on to make later. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, particularly in terms of growing up and growing up in East London, East London at that time, particularly 60s going into the 70s, I, you know, I grew up with lots of people whose families were, you know, you know almost paid up members for the National Front, you know, and living in, 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 in diverse areas. You know, the school I went to, it was very diverse, but there was a strong element of of those who were totally against the, the question of, you know, these people of colour being in their community. Uh, and in a violent way, I'm not even just saying in a kind of theoretical or as an idea, but that, you know, it, it was it was genuinely known that you didn't go out late at night on your own. If you did, you might get chased, you might get beaten up. It was, you know, this is very, this is very real. Yeah. So, of course, th- all of these incidents politicise. They just politicise a person. Yes. Of course, not everybody is of the same opinion as of me, but for me, it did politicise me in a way that I may not have come to if those things hadn't happened. Yeah, because you were making this, I mean, absolutely gorgeous oil pastels of, as I said, yourself as a young girl wearing beautifully patterned dresses against these very rich backdrops and they had titles that referenced the empire and queen victoria and the colonies and so you were obviously placing yourself in the context of england and the empire and colonialism and all of these things and then you sort of stopped making these sort of representational oil pastels these self-portraits and you made your practice all about as you say the politics of being black and british because there was a, a movement, you were a prominent member of that movement, the Black British Art Movement, and and your art became much more community based, uh, social socially based. Well, I think those drawings were socially based, but because I was the central protagonist, you could say, and I think people always regarded them as being quite diaristic somehow. I thought I was speaking politically and about the context in which I was in, which was not just about me, but was about a wider political, historical sure. uh, context. Um, and then the work shifted because I didn't want to be the central figure. And we're going back to this question about representation and, and the burden of representation here. But And I think the shift to getting more people involved in the work was a shift to actually to trying to explore what are these social relations between people. And that that has really been so that rather than people saying, oh, it's 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 about Sonia, and the work became then an exploration of the relations between people, the, the relations between what we understand difference to be. And what happens when you bring different people together, particularly people who may not know each other. So that idea of the unknown somehow. Yeah. And that's what I have been exploring, particularly more recently. But since the 90s, I, that's what I've been doing is asking people to, to enter into the work, but also for the question about their identity and whoever else may be in that work their identity and what those relations might be and how they might be negotiated in some way. So 
I'm going to ask you the the stupid tabloid question. <laughs> you know, somebody might say, well, this is social work or this is community gathering or activism, etc. How is this art again? So um, I'm going to be art historical here. Okay. I think it was 1913. It may be 1911. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an artist called Marcel Duchamp. Yeah. Who put a, a toilet bowl. A urinal. A urinal. Mm-hmm. A piece is called Fountain. So that happened over a hundred and mm. nearly 115 years ago, let's say. Art has changed enormously since then. And if we, if I was to talk about the ways in which we experience contemporary life, if I was to suggest that we go back to the oil lamp and gas lighting, even skipping the digital just to talk about electricity, things have changed. We understand that things change. Art changes with life, other life experiences. So for me to start to say why why art is not just about painting, right, is that a lot has happened in, in those over 100 years in terms of art practice. Yeah. So for me to then explain well, why is what I'm doing art, well, art has recognised its place in the world mm-hmm. with other people. And so there's been a, there's a history of artists working with social commentary, with particularly since, I would say, since the 1950s, a social practice. Mm-hmm. It, it has a long history. Right. It may not be something that is easily recognisable when I'm asked about being an artist, but art itself has changed. I'm very much in the field of art as it's happening in that contemporary sense. Um, Let me bring up an example of this social practice that you're involved in. Can you tell us the story of what happened at the Manchester Art Gallery when you gathered these women and they were really describing the unpleasant experiences they were having with middle-aged men near this famous pre-Raphaelite painting of a naked young girl? A lot of the work that I've been doing where I involve lots of people in the process and in the, sometimes in the fabrication of the artwork, sometimes it takes a really long time for that work to emerge. So for a year, mm-hmm. I, was having, I was going from London up to Manchester because they were commissioning me to make a, a response to the permanent collection at the Manchester Art Gallery. Yeah. And I began by having conversations with staff members mainly the curatorial and public events team who were taking me around the galleries and showing me, you know, this is the space, these are the works that we have on permanent display. And we then got into a conversation. Mm-hmm. And things then started to kind of unfold, not necessarily in a planned way, but in a quite an organic way, where they were talking about some of the some of the works in the permanent collection that because of their public program and the conversation they they'd been having with the public were causing a number of problems uh, or ca- causing quite tense discussions for the for the gallery to be thinking uh-huh. about mm-hmm. because in the permanent collection which is the more historical side of the museum a lot of the works had been there for a very long time and a lot of the works had naked or semi-naked women yeah, uh, and there seemed to be a, a kind of pattern of narrative about these these paintings, which would often suggest that uh, these females were femme fatales, or that somehow they would be they, objects of desire. Objects of desire, but desire that would somehow kill you. Oh, I see. So, 
this seemed to be a narrative that nobody had really spoken about before. And as this conversation developed, staff members who work in kind of public facing roles were saying, well, actually, what often happens, and they'd never spoken about this before, what often happens while we're in the gallery is that we get harassed by visitors, mainly men. Some say very salacious things. Some say, you know, it, this is a kind of form of harassment that has been very quiet, seemingly low level forms of harassment, but always to the female staff who were public facing. And yeah. of course, because this, this conversation was gathering, people were volunteering to join the conversation. We were having them conversations in the museum itself. And which painting in particular became the target of discussion and then suggest you suggested that it be taken down temporarily, which caused a furore across the country? So it wasn't me who suggested it was okay. taken down. Um, but what emerged out of this conversation, there's a particular painting that we always seem to end up in front of, which was a painting called Hylas and the Nymphs. Yeah. And it's one of the most famous paintings owned by Manchester Art Gallery. By Waterhouse. By Waterhouse. Mm -hmm. And it's a 19th century painting. It has about seven or eight young females, all of the same. I think it was all the same model and, and one male figure. And they're all semi, um, you know, they're in the water. They're luring Hylas to his death. Um, by being very beautiful, very right. pale. And very naked. And very naked. Mm -hmm. And they're meant to be kind of on the verge of being pubescent. So they're young girls, basically. They're young girls. They are clearly meant to be sexually attractive. Yeah. And what this conversation was, what was emerging out of this conversation yeah. was not only were female members of, of public-facing members of staff getting harassed, but that they had noticed in the gallery that lots of young girls, teenage girls, young girls, would um, love this painting because it's about the power of female sexuality uh, and would be taking selfies of themselves in front of the painting. And then around them, there would be gathering these middle-aged men who would then engage into conversation with these young girls and that there was a kind of cruising culture yeah. that was emerging. Now, when we think about the museum, we think of it as this kind of studious, serious... Safe space. But actually, in front of this painting, there was a kind of culture that was emerging. And it was, as I say, it wasn't me who said, this painting needs to come down. As the conversation with staff members gathered, more and more people got involved in these conversations. We all witnessed a middle-aged man walking around, taking images on his iPhone, iPhone, iPad, all of the naked images of women that were in 19th century paintings in that gallery, making very guttural and very salacious sounds. Obviously, he was recording something of himself looking at these. And then he, he finally rested at Hylas and the Nymphs. And we were right in front of him. There was like 30 of us in front of Hylas and this, and this man walks up and we all went silent. It was so awkward. And this other visitor, another man, came up to him and said, you know they're meant to be pubescent girls. And he said, oh, even better. You know, and it was really guttural. And everybody just yeah. like, it was really very chilling. And it was at that point that the staff who were there on that discussion says, that painting has got to come down. 
Yeah. Okay. So, so, I mean, there was a massive backlash in the media. I saw the headlines at the time and none of that context was explained whatsoever. It just said, oh, well, here we go. Manchester Art Gallery being so PC. It's also politically correct and woke. And they're taking down this great pre-Raphaelite painting. What a scandal. And there were great, I mean, I mean, major uh, critics were writing columns about this and saying this was a mistake that would go down art history, blah, blah. Assuming, I guess, that this was going to be a permanent choice. I mean, what, what, how did you feel about that? It, it did come down in the performance that took place a few months later. Um, it was very organized. Nobody was hurt. It was put away very safely in the storeroom. There was an invited audience to come experience these very improvised performances happening in various spaces. And one of the people who was invited to, to attend was a painter. He went to the press because he was outraged. Oh, I see. He was outraged that a painting by a, you know, very well-known, one of the most famous works in their collection, had been taken down as part of this performance. Well, so what was your reaction, though, to this whole I was terrified. I, mm. I was terrified. I was. Why was, were you terrified? Because, one, I was not expecting it to reach the media. Yeah. And we hadn't really, really cottoned on to the wider world. But so, I mean, the the painting came down temporarily, right? Then it went back up. And that was the misunderstanding. The whole country thought that you had suggested that this painting be taken down and never shown. I think that was one of one of the interpretations. I think it was just the very act of taking the painting down. Mm -hmm. Why were they so fussed about it? Because this is this is the the question of what we already know and has been validated, and you know this this is proper art mm. by a white nineteenth century male, male paint. painter, and it is as I said, it's a very well known painting. It's a very loved painting. I have nothing against the painting personally. I think it's I think it's beautifully painted. You know, I have no I have no issue with it as a painting. But there were other questions that were being hidden in front, in plain sight of that painting. But so I mean, so to broaden the discussion and ask you a question, which is probably a tough one, what is it that art brings to human beings that they don't otherwise have? Is it a substitute for religion, which I think is something that was important in your household? although you yourself are not religious. I mean, what is this art thing that you and I are both so wrapped up in? <laughs> I mean, it is a difficult question. Yeah. I will, uh, I will say that. But what I will also say is that every single culture has had art. Mm. It is something that is fundamental to being human. And whether we're able to answer it as a question, um, we, I don't think we have yet. Because it's, it's something to do with an absolute necessity to make our mark in the world and to have that mark seen by someone else and recognised. But, but that, that question of expressing one's self in the world yeah. somehow, you know, do we ask why we speak? Do we ask why we sing? Do we ask why we move? Mm -hmm. it's, it's an essential, I mean, you know, I, in some ways people might, say that I border on the religious in terms of talking about art but I just think it's an absolutely essential human um, need a fundamental need that we have. But is it resembling the need for transcendence and spirituality which translates into the need to go to a church or to go, go to a mosque or pray or does is it that kind of a need because personally when I walk into a museum and I and and there's a beautiful 
work of art there, I do feel something of a transcendence and it does resemble spirituality or, you know, faith for some. I don't know what you think. Uh, well, I suppose to start with, I wouldn't categorize all the art that I'm interested in as beauty. You know, there are some works that just make me think, they make me feel, they pose a question, they, I, you know, different, you know, different works do different things. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, you know, my, my rule book wouldn't be that art has to be beautiful. But in some way, the thing that I most want from art is that it moves me in some way, that I'm not indifferent to it. And that's that's what I that's when my juices start to get going. Yeah. Is that there's something in a way that something has been made or what is being suggested from that work that it has an internal effect. Now, if one's going to talk about transcendence as an internal thing, then I think Yes, then art does have that capacity. But it's also, if you're talking about religion and organised religion, there is the question of the collective, a kind of collective forms of transcendence that also seems to be important in religion. And I do think that that is why we have museums and why we have spaces where we can share an experience of coming to work. But often it's silent. Yeah. No, I mean, that was a very difficult question. I mean, it is one of the mysteries of the world. Art is truly a mystery. Uh, absolutely. I also wanted to ask you, we recently had, of course, as everyone knows, the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. And um, I just wanted to ask you what she represented to you. And also because, you know, part of your family is from Barbados, which recently left the Commonwealth. I don't know what your feelings are, whether you have mixed feelings or what are your thoughts? It's mixed feelings, but I will I will correct you slightly yeah. in that Barbados Sorry. hasn't left the Commonwealth. It's less, it's it's become a republic. It's become a republic, but it is still part of the Commonwealth. Sorry, apologies for that. Um, well, it, you know, it, this is really this is really important. The question of the Commonwealth, yeah, and the way in which Commonwealth countries are tied to a history of empire within the UK. Right, exactly. So it's, it's called a family now in terms of the Commonwealth, but it, the, the way in which it became a Commonwealth is very, very messy and complicated and there's a kind of level of interdependency for all of us, actually, that is difficult to untangle or disentangle. So, of course, my relationship to the Queen is going to be complex because of that. Right. You know, it's like it's a family, but it's also an aggressor. And it's also I live here. I was born here. This is all I've known, you know, and all of those emotions. And I'm sure everybody has been feeling mm. a mixture of emotions, actually, because also at the same time, she was someone that we all knew around the world, actually. But yeah. we all knew somehow we'd see her every day whether we're looking at the coin coins or we're looking at money or we're looking at so you know to have someone so familiar but also such a kind of symbolic figure mm. it's a very it's a very complicated set of emotions and of course I am also an OBE you are you are you you received a, a distinction from the royal family and from the government and so you know my relationship to the history of empire and its legacies, all of those complications are going to be tied up with how I've processed the Queen dying recently. 
Mm. Um, so it's not a simple, uh, you know, um, it's, it's not a simple question of love her or hate her or, you know, any of those sorts of things. It's it, For me, it's much more complicated than that. And I am sad, you know. I, mm. you know, I, I, I have no joy in the fact that the Queen has died. I, I thought it was very sad. Very sad. So I just wanted to uh, move on to what you're doing now, art-wise. You, one of the projects that you're involved in is putting up these banners uh, on Cork Street uh, for as part of the Cork Street galleries. And, I, and can you talk a little bit about? Um, this banner that you've designed? Well, it's, it's actually um, two of the images that come out of the Venice project and Feeling Her Way. And I think for the last couple of years, um, Cork Street has been bringing together a number of the kind of commercial galleries to do specific events to keep a sense of a kind of community of uh, the art world as it exists in London going. And so two of those, two of these images, one of Tanita Tikaram and one of Poppy Ajuda, um, that come directly out of the, the work that's in the pavilion has been made into banners and, and is, is kind of almost like a kind of a street parade, you could say. As an announcement for Freeze um, Week, which opens, uh, as we know, from Monday the 10th of, of October. And, I mean, it's very kind of them. They're kind of celebrating the you know, the pavilion and the fact that yeah. Pavilion won uh, the Golden Lion. So it's very kind. And I've not had, you know, I've, you know they, they just asked me whether they could celebrate me. And I think it's very kind of them. Yeah. Great. I wondered what other kind of art you're doing right now. Are you continuing with your social art practice, your community-based art, or are you um, heading in a new direction? No, I'm. I'm still. I'm still very much involved in working with other people. And when we, when you say community, I mean, there's one of the things that kind of been one of the ways in which social engagement has kind of been talked about it's very much rooted in a kind of 19th century philanthropist idea of community in the poor and the and the communities that i work with are a wide range you know? no, no that's not what i meant yeah but yeah, you know it, yeah, but yeah. it's often thought when when people say i remember i should have said communities I yeah think plural, plural because there are many different kinds but you know i remember when i was at art school you know this was in the in the late 70s and early 80s and my tutors sometimes they were being quite dismissive, would say, oh, you should go and do social work because of the 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 content nature of the work. As if there is a kind... I don't have divides in that sense. And I will work with people who, whatever field, I've worked with a Renaissance choir as much as I've worked with, you know, with people who, who've experienced domestic abuse. I've worked with people who, who, uh, who are performers and bring audiences in from all kinds. You know, so for me, communities are not. I I don't have a a, a picture of communities. No, I understand. So to say, I work with people who who are brave enough to come into the projects that I want to do, and I'm you know I want to welcome them in, and I'm also very excited by what they know. Well, it'd be nice if I could join one of your communities at some point. I'm just kidding. That, well, no, I would love you to. I would love you to because I do. I do think that there is something really there is there is a reverie that that emerges in these when the performances take place, uh-huh. when people come together. This is what I love. Yeah. You know that actually people do know how to come together and they do know how to create something extraordinary together, and that is the thing that I'm really most interested in. Mm -hmm. One of the final sentences in my book is a quote from someone 
you and I both know, and someone who admires you greatly, Isaac Julian, who is now Sir Isaac Julian. And Isaac says something, he goes to me, he says, I would like to arrive at a day when we no longer have to underline things, underline the fact that this artist is a female artist, underline people according to their gender or their uh, cultural origin or their orientation. And I wondered I, what you thought of that and whether you thought that one day this day would come when we would stop identifying people and putting labels on them. I suppose part of what doesn't get discussed enough, there's a kind of guilt that we might feel or an embarrassment we might feel when we say a white male artist who doesn't have to name themselves as a white male artist. Yeah. And actually, we're all pivoting around that. And that is, you know, that is, for me, the crux of the issue. It's like, okay, so when, when you're able to say, I'm a white male artist, and this show has got this many white male artists in it, yeah, without us cringing, yeah, then maybe we start to move to a point of equity. Because it's really is about that which is not named but is in plain sight. Yeah. That we're all trying to negotiate our way around. I mean, we have only recently started counting them up, actually, and realizing, yeah, the overwhelming majority that they constitute. And, you know, it might sound like I'm being woke or I'm being PC and uh, all kinds of labels might be stuck on me. But this is just a statement of fact. You know, and it, and uh, as journalists, we are in the fact business. We are in the business of basically trying to establish fairly what the reality is. And as I've written in this book, I mean, the reality has been incredibly lopsided for pretty much most of art history. So, Sonia, yeah, I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you as as it always is. Uh, I wish you uh, nothing but the best in your stellar career, which I'm sure will continue to be even more stellar. Thank you ever so much for joining Culture Blast. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. My thanks go to Sonia Boyce for accepting this invitation to appear on Culture Blast. If you like this episode and the ones that came before, Make sure and subscribe so you never miss a show. Give us a review, share the link, and if you want to support the show in other ways, go to our website, cultureblast.org. This podcast exists thanks to the great Karina Pierre Rochard, its executive producer and co-founder, and thanks to the talents of Ben Eshmade, who produces the podcast to such very high standards. It's been a great pleasure presenting our latest episode with Sonia Boyce. I will be back soon with another star guest. This episode of Culture Blast is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. Cork Street Galleries, an initiative from the Pollen Estate, lies at the centre of the highest concentration of galleries in London. Since the Mayor Gallery opened on Cork Street in 1925, the street has remained at the forefront of cutting-edge art movements. The Pollen Estate has created additional gallery space on the street to preserve Cork Street's innovative reputation as a leading, dedicated street for modern and contemporary art. 
To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com.